So Father, we come to you with anxious hearts, um, with, with levels of anxiety. The top levels that might have our heart racing and then the deep, deep, deep levels that have been hanging around with us. Um, and all it takes is the topic maybe to, to bring it up or us to remember the things we're afraid of uh, or that those bills are continuing to hang um, or that those people might still be saying things about us or whatever it might be um, to take the latent deep fears and anxieties and to bring them to the surface. Life is difficult, life is messy, and it's, it's a tension-filled existence that we have, uh, but that anxiety is not your desire for us as kingdom people. It's not your desire for us as our Father, and so we come to you with our anxiety, praying that somehow today you might be able to speak to that anxiety, that we would walk out knowing that you are bigger than our fears, bigger than our worries, bigger than our enemies, bigger than our challenges, uh, bigger than our temptations. And that somehow the peace of that would fill our hearts. That the fear of the Lord would be the beginning of our knowledge and our wisdom and our discernment. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 20. We're in a series called The Desert. The desert is a metaphor, it's a symbol for the Christian life, for the life of God's people. Um, the stage between slavery and where we were and true freedom or rest and where we're going. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about Joshua not fully bringing the people of God into rest. The promised land was the promised place of rest, but they didn't fully enter into rest, that it's been left to Jesus, who's greater than Joshua, greater than Moses. He's our high priest. The whole book of Hebrews is showing us how Christ is the one who fulfills all these different offices, prophet, priest, king, etc. And that ultimately he's the one that will lead us into the rest that the people of God will enjoy. And, and in the middle, we're in this in-between time. We're in the desert. And the desert is a place, it's a crucible uh, where we see that work is uh, at a premium. It's a difficult place to live, a desert is. Um, it wasn't till the modern era that places like Phoenix, Phoenix would, would look desirable. Um, the desert is a, a, a difficult place. It doesn't have much water, not much can grow with the arid soil. And so it's, it's kind of a place where you're gonna have to really toil and work and labor. It's also a place of danger where you're facing many challenges. Uh, there's not a lot of security or refuge or safety. Um, there's a lot of, of uh, weather-related fears and concerns. And so you get this interesting picture of the difficulty or the challenge, the relentless difficulty or challenge in life and the anxiety that comes from that the anxiety of are we going to have a sufficient amount to be able to live? Are we going to have enough to sustain ourselves? And ultimately, the anxiety about how do we live as people made in the image of God in this place with dignity? How do you live in the desert? How do you live in the middle of cancer? How do you live in the middle of divorce? How do you live in the middle of bankruptcy? How do you live in the middle of, of those challenges with dignity, saying that somehow the fact that God is present with us. Next week, Pete's gonna talk about the tabernacle and the whole idea of the presence of God being with us, but how do we live as people that somehow have strength and, and sustenance and relationship and intimacy with God that truly can give us love, joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, mercy, goodness, self-control, I don't know, is that enough? Um, does it, Anyways, um, the fruit of the Spirit, the, the things that are going to grow or be produced in us by the Holy Spirit that, that are the kinds of character traits we all long to have, right? 
but that somehow it's, it's not how fertile the soil is that's gonna give rise to the, the fruits. It's not how prosperous you are. It's not how wonderful your community of friends are. It's not the, the wonderful schedule you get to keep. It's not the wonderful toys you have or, or the distractions that you're able to enjoy. None of those things are what's gonna give rise to those character traits. It's the Holy Spirit, even, even, in the midst of arid deserts that's gonna produce this fruit in our life. Isn't that amazing? We, we come here on Sunday mornings because we believe that to be true. We don't always experience it. Sometimes we doubt it, but deep down we know that this is the hope that we have that we might become the people we desire to be and, the, and that God desires for us to be. And so we come and we gather and we fight for the faith to hold on and little by little we see evidence of this coming, coming about in our life or the life of the people around us or Clarissa Jurgensen or the freezes because that's really that spiritual juice that they've got, right? Joy, if you really wanna break it down, it's, it's like the dimmer switch on, on, on lamps. You know what I'm talking about? And joy is when somebody's dimmer switch is turned up and they light up the room and you know it when you walk into the room. There are people that have joy and we know those people and when you walk in and you see Medell Freeze, you are affected by it and deep down inside something, not the bad kind of envy, but the good kind of desire, you're drawn to that and you wanna have that as well. You want to emulate that and you go, that's what it's all about. And so you find yourself spending more time with those people and you begin to believe there's something about the Christian community. There's something about this relationship with God that's going to produce this fruit despite the challenges that are in my life. That's what the Desert Series is about. When we get to chapter 20, it's a really interesting chapter. It's another one of these basic chapters. Last week we talked about Jethro and Moses what it means to deal with capacity issues as leaders. Um, this is another basic chapter. God is going to give to this whole community of people, the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands, he's going to give them ten commandments. And he's going to say, this is the grid, this is the framework, this is the structure, that if you do these ten things, if these ten things are, are kind of the tracks on which you all run, the code by which you all live, then you will understand the beauty of what it means for me to be in your midst and for you to reflect the character that I desire for you to have. The commandments are means to an end of the shalom and the flourishing of, of relational beings being together and in relationship with their God. Okay, it's a means to an end. These are the things that are gonna bring about this fruit. And so God gives the Ten Commandments. I'll start reading. I'm gonna read through the whole of the Ten Commandments. It's Exodus chapter 20, and it starts this way. I, I am putting in a cough drop, and that does violate all the rules of public speaking, and I know that. So maybe we can... You can have grace for me. <laughs> and God spoke all these words. And I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. <clears throat> um, so what happens in churches with difficult topics like immigration or race or, or whatever is that pastors like me know there's something there that needs to be talked about. And so we'll find little ways to pepper it in as, a, as an illustration or as an application. The problem with illustrations and applications is it's not education. When you take a whole sermon and you educate on immigration or race or whatever, that's education. And we don't do that. The reason we don't do that is because it's not safe to do that. Because not everybody, this is human nature, we don't regularly put, 
put people's words in the best light. We don't hear what they're saying and go, you know what? Let me put it in the best light and try to understand what, what this person's saying. We usually hear someone's words and we spin it to the worst possible light and then we kind of criticize it. And as a pastor, when you talk about something controversial and a bunch of people are going to spin it, put it in the worst light, it's a really frustrating thing. It takes a lot of time and energy and it grinds you down. And so you tend to stay in the middle where it's safe and feel good about a couple of illustrations or application points that allow you to feel like you're really dealing with some, some di difficult biblical topics. Um, there's a lot I can educate us on. A lot I can't. There's a lot of things I don't know, a lot of things that are outside of my area of expertise, but there's a lot of things that I could educate us on. I'm asking you to push me to not always be in my safe zone. So, so maybe you'll take it upon yourself to push me or give me permission um, to, to go a little bit out into the extremes where we might actually have to wrestle a bit deeper. That's a side note, because one of the issues with race is simply this. <clears throat> it's hard for the majority church or sometimes the white church to understand racism because we don't have a story that connects us to slavery. And much of the Bible, much of the Christian life comes into focus and makes sense when it's connected first to a narrative of having come out of slavery. Does that make sense? The Ten Commandments begin this way. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. We can spiritualize that and say we've been freed from sin. It's a whole different matter if we've been, been freed from an oppressive regime in the third world, been freed literally from slavery or our parents from domestic slavery. Um, I have a friend whose parents were domestic slaves on an island in the Pacific um, not too long ago from India to there and then they ended up in, in Australia. Um, it's a whole different matter when we understand God as speaking to real slavery. By the way, I have language envy that Spanish speakers get to call God Señor. It's the problem with envy is you can't go anywhere with it other than you, you just have it. But do you hear me, people of God? I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Do you, do you hear me? people of God. Commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the, the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love and keep my commandments. One of the problems I have with the Left Behind series and, and all the end times mania is I want to live a life that could literally bless a thousand generations of my descendants. Rick Gerhardt and I talk about this all the time. My wife and I talk about this. I want to live a life that literally could have a ripple effect for a thousand generations. End times thinking is like, let me just have some fun because it's going to really suck if the rapture comes and I haven't done a couple of the things on my wish list. So let me hurry up and expedite my pleasure seeking. I don't know. Maybe that makes sense to you. Um, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. If you talk about something magnificent and big and glorious as if it's common, 
pretty soon you begin to think of it as, as if it's common. That's really what's going on here. God is trying to say, I'm big, I'm holy, I have to be at the center, I have to be the main thing, it's important. And so if you profane that, if you talk about me as if I'm common, pretty soon your thinking will follow your words. Your thinking will follow your words. You know that this is true in every area. Most people who in adult life decide to start cussing, I call them cussing Christians. I don't get the phenomenon. Um, doesn't mean I've never cussed. But, but Christians are like, I'm going to show you my liberty. I'm going to try and cuss on a regular basis. They kind of make a decision to start allowing cussing in. You want to know what's funny though? Talking lewdly, slowly, at least with the guy gender. Women are just naturally more holy. Um, but guys... <laughs> If they start talking a certain way, pretty soon they'll, it's like the topics that they'll talk about or how they'll talk about things begins to follow. Like it's amazing how words shape us. We shape words and they shape us. And God is saying, you don't get to use common words for me. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, um, you shall not do any work. Neither you nor your son or daughter nor your manservant or maidservant nor your animals nor the alien within your uh, gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. It's called in the New Testament the one commandment with a promise. Like, hey, don't do this just because, like, it's logical. Your father and mother are so wonderful that you should honor them. It's like, no, you honor them because God is telling you to honor them, even if it's illogical. And so when you do something illogical, usually God tries to say, but here's the kicker. You can sustain this. You can do this. You can, you can live this out obediently because you can look to the fact that I'm going to bless you for doing it. It's not that they deserve it. It's not that good is going to come from it. It's that if you do that, I'll bless you because this is the way I want it to be. So you're, you're doing this not, not dependent on anything to do with your parents. You're doing it dependent upon God who's asking it and who will reward you. So this is the one commandment with a promise. Verse 13 says, you shall not murder. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. There's actually a really funny story about an English Bible in the 1600s when, when the Bible was first being able to be translated into the vernacular, uh, meaning the common language, because for much of the Catholic Church, it was the Latin Vulgate, and average people weren't allowed to have the Bible uh, where they could read them. And one of the first kind of iterations of the Bible, it's now called the Wicked Bible in history, it was an English Bible that was written, uh, was printed, the Gutenberg Press had been invented in the 1400s, but so it had been printed, and on this commandment, it, it said, you shall commit adultery, and so it came to be known as the Wicked Bible because of that typo, um, and I really wonder if there is a person in history that, anyways, tried to uh, you shall not steal you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor you shall not covet your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor and there we have the ten commandments which commandments most important Well, if you go in order of sequence, you would say the first commandment. You have no other God. That everything kind of falls from that, doesn't it? If I asked what's most important, you go sequentially, you'd say that one. Um, if I asked which is the most important for us to wrap our minds around, well, you could say, well, the most important one would probably be the most important one for us to wrap our minds around. Um, but you could also answer the question like, well, which one is the one that we're going to not understand the most and be most apt to not live into, that one might be the most important one for us to understand. And if you were going to answer that question that way, you'd probably say, 
uh, which commandment needed the most explanation in Scripture? Which commandment needed the most explanation? In other, in other words, uh, which commandment has the most words in it? Thou shalt not commit murder isn't the right answer. It's the Sabbath command. It has the most words in it. And I have to believe that maybe it's because it's the hardest to wrap our minds around. It's been said that the Ten Commandments are nine commandments and, and the one suggestion. Um, Sabbath. Uh, it's a really foggy concept, the Sabbath command. I think my first take at it would simply be this. I think the stuff with God is really clear. It, it governs my relationship with God. I get it. Um, not killing or stealing, I get it. It governs my relationship with my fellow man. But the Sabbath one um, has me as the ic explicit kind of subject and God and man as the implicit things. In other words, when I explicitly get my relationship with God right, it's also implicit somehow about me being rightly ordered. When I don't kill explicitly, I'm treating my neighbor the right way, but implicitly, I'm the right kind of person that doesn't go around killing other people. But God or others are explicit and kind of on the front edge, and I am kind of hiding in the background, but obviously a part of it. When you get to Sabbath command, it's reversed, and it's like, well, this is really somehow about me resting or me not doing anything or me not working, and maybe that's good for God, maybe that's good for others, but it's really this kind of me on the front edge and I think that's why it's so hard for us to understand the Sabbath because it's really about me and when I hold me up and I go what does me need the answer is not usually me needs Sabbath and deep down in our belly that might be our answer but our surface answer is me needs money me needs to catch up because this little treadmill I'm on like, I can't stop for a second. I'll fall behind. Me needs people because I'm an extrovert and I'm burned out and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, me needs whatever. But, but there's a lot of things on the, on the front edge that we feel like we need and rest or pulling away from anxiety or, or gathering with the people of God is not usually the me needs thing. And I think that's why it's a commandment. Because God is literally saying, you needs Sabbath. And you needs it so much that I'm commanding you to observe it. So then the question becomes, well, what is Sabbath? And this was the question in Jesus' day. Because if it's a command, if it's really important, it's, it's, it's got to be defined. And there's a problem with defining things. I... I have a problem with a lot of sermons because um, if we say it too black and white without the nuance, it creates a lot of funky, weird stuff. So I remember for a season there, I heard that it was so important to have a date night in your marriage. I heard it so much that mutual submission and all this other stuff, I heard it so much, you got to schedule it in. If you don't schedule it in, it's not going to happen. That when it didn't happen, like I was, I, I was tyrannized by it this like deep spiritual guilt and when it did happen like in my mind because I'm a type A I'm like checking a box in my mind on my spiritual list you know and Tamara's sitting there and it's like this has got to this is about relationship and intimacy and and enjoying each other in conversation and I'm like man I made that preacher happy I can't wait to go talk to our mentor couple because I because I did it like we did our date night. And, and that's, that's, that's what can happen with preaching sometimes as we become legalistic about it. It happened with me with, uh, with evangelism. There is a great commission where we're supposed to go and be witnesses to this world that needs to know about Christ. And it's important because people, we think everyone in America knows about Christianity, but, but they don't really know the story they have bad examples, um, bad bits and pieces. 
um, jumbled together, who knows what, you know. And, and so, yes, we have to go tell them the good news. But sometimes, it, back in the 90s, for me, it was so in my face that it was like, if I didn't share the gospel with X amount of people per day, like, I'd have to flog myself at night. And when somebody would be in front of me, it was like the prime directive. It's, it's like, wow, you just lost a loved one? That's too bad, but let me tell you about Jesus, you know? Like someone would come in and be like, hey, I can't pay my rent. Um, hey, that's, that's great. Um, church doesn't have any money, but before you leave, let me tell you about Jesus. You know, I, you know it, was, it was like really mixed up that way. Like the priorities were skewed. It's like, I'm gonna love you so that I can tell you about Jesus, which isn't really true love. I'm gonna make you a means to an end of a better you that I can envision. Um, and if, if marriage ran on those tracks, anyone married? It wouldn't really work, would it? You can't go into it and always see an idealized version of what you want someone to be or become or do or, or accept. You have to start with where people are at. So I, I remember being tyrannized by this kind of weird law of evangelism that kind of came out. And so that's, that's something that gets me. Um, I'm not a big fan of that, but that's what the Pharisees had done, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 2, with the Sabbath. Here's this command. It's a bit loose. It's a bit undefined. But God obviously really cares about it. And so in the time leading up to, to Christ, there had become all these kind of do's and don'ts. Let's help define it for you. Let's put some meat on the bone here and give you prescriptions for how you're supposed to do the Sabbath. And Jesus shows up, and remember, he's the one that's going to usher us finally into our rest. He's the, he's, the, he's the walking Sabbath. One of the things that's amazing about the leadership of Jesus is the lack of anxiety you see in Jesus. You do see when Jesus is in the garden at the end, just, just the, the reality of, of human emotions and suffering and the challenge and the difficulty. But for the most part, you see this guy who literally has a strength of character that you know was winsome. He didn't walk around insecure. He walked around with this non-anxious presence. He's the walking Sabbath in some ways, the Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus runs into a situation with the Pharisees. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. This is what it says. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on Sabbath? You're not supposed to pick any grain. And he answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and need? In the days of Ab uh, Abiathar uh, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, meaning the bread that was marked off as holy unto the, the Lord. And it was lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. So in other words, David, out of necessity, human necessity, ate the holy bread. And Jesus is saying like, you know what? Sometimes the holy bread needs to be eaten. And if David can do that in Scripture and, and he's the king and, and he's kind of the archetype of whatever, um, how can we not do some of this stuff too? So he says, verse 27, Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So whatever we're trying to figure out with the Sabbath command here, the idea is not to put rules into it. It's a principle at this point that says God is telling us with these Ten Commands, which are means to an end, that this is how you should pattern your life. And when you pattern your life this way, it's going to produce the right kind of thing in you. So today in our culture, Sabbath for us is that thing that if we try to learn what it looks like to sacrifice and out of duty or obedience put it into our <coughs> excuse me <coughs> our rhythms that 
the right kind of life, the right kind of joy, the right kind of flourishing is going to come about in our life. We're all going to be like Medell Fries. Medell's going to get mad at me for, for using her that way. Um, so it's this thing that says, how do we live this into our life? It's not going to be easy, otherwise God wouldn't have had to command it. So it's, a, it's something we wrestle into our life by faith, knowing that it's going to bear some kind of fruit. So what do we make of the Sabbath? Um, Augustine, who wrote way back, um, but first off, let me just read Exodus 16. Bear in mind that the Lord has given, given you the Sabbath. I, I want to underscore that Jesus was taking Old Testament Scripture and Jesus was always showing the Pharisees that they were missing what was in the Bible. But God gave us the Sabbath. So Augustine, writing in the late 300s, early 400s, wrote this, this massive work called the City of God. And what he really does is says there's the City of God and the City of Man, that there's really two poles going on here. And they're very, very different by nature. Um, the DNA is totally different. And the city of God is the heavenly kingdom, um, and the city of man is, is the, wor the world and what happens on the world. Now, the citizens of God's kingdom are in the world, but not of the world, like Scripture teaches us. So we're walking around in the city of man um, and relating with the city of man, but we are citizens of the city of God. And Augustine writes this whole massive work trying to play this out. And I think there's something really interesting that comes into it, and I want to switch from Augustine to a contemporary, Walter Brueggemann. Walter Brueggemann looks at the Old Testament, he's an Old Testament scholar, and he says that everything is always being brought back to the symbol of Egypt. Don't go back to Egypt. You've been taken out of slavery. The Egypt becomes the symbol of the city of man, of empire and you're coming out of this to reflect something different. And this represents the toil, the slavery, the extortion, the oppression, the submitting to the rules of man to get their meat or their bread doled out to you while you're a slave to that system. It represents all the things that, that are empire. And so Walter Brueggemann says there's this thing called empire. And that we wrestle with empire as citizens of the kingdom of God all the time with worldly empire. And, and so for him, Sabbath comes as a way of saying it stands in contrast to empire. Where empire says work, Sabbath says rest. Where empire says strive, Sabbath says submit. Where empire says compete, Sabbath says, let it go. Where empire says you're being told to kind of go with the system, Sabbath says there's a higher system, a different system, and you stand in judgment of all worldly systems that would exploit man. That there's this real dialectic going on here between Sabbath and empire, and Sabbath literally is a form of resistance to empire. I love that. Conjures up Star Wars and stuff for me. Here's Walter Brueggemann. Sabbath, in the first instance, is not about worship. It is about work stoppage. It is about withdrawal from the anxiety system of Pharaoh. The refusal to let one's life be defined by production and consumption and the endless pursuit of private well-being. So I've been told that Doritos literally has a lab where, where they literally play with micro-adjustments to the chip. The ingredients, the level of crunch that it makes, trying to perfect the, the feel, the taste, the sound, everything about it, because on the scale that they operate, getting that formula right has everything to do with the amount of revenue they're going to be able to make. Does that make sense? It doesn't surprise anyone, does it? Right? To Doritos in their lab, we are consumers. And they don't care about the humanity of us. 
they care about us buying their chip and so they want to find what is going to work for the greatest amount of consumptive energy in us and that makes sense if I was on the board of Doritos guess what that's what we would be doing <laughs> with a verse on the wall in the boardroom um, okay but this is empire I'm treated as a consumer in this culture even church goers can come in here and not see Ken as a human or, or having dignity they can see Ken as owing them something that they desire so that they can consume it and if the crunch isn't right and if the taste isn't right, instead of submitting to leadership in a church or mutual submission as being in the body of Christ together, the natural reaction will be criticism because the formula wasn't right and I wasn't performing the duty that I owe to a consumer culture. But empire, as Brueggemann uh, is saying, is this ongoing thing that treats us in this certain kind of way as functioning within the systems and the structures don't you ever feel like you're caught up in that I mean I know where I'm going to be next Sunday because someone else decided to put a football game on that day at that time and it dictates my schedule right somebody decided to deflate some footballs and so therefore I've spent at least five hours becoming an expert on football inflation deflation what happens in cold weather what the body language of Tom Brady actually says and whether or not it should matter I react to everything in the city of man and the funny thing is, is we're Americans, so we're, we're taught empire is bad. Empire is Germany. Empire is Rome. Empire is everything else. America, good. Empire for Brueggemann is the world. America is empire to Brueggemann. It's real easy if you pop over to any other place in the world for... <coughs> excuse me. Maybe I shouldn't say that. <coughs> it's easier for that point to come across if you go anywhere else in the world. America as empire exporting Hollywood is a little bit easier to wrap our mind around. Lowercase e. I am an American. I saw American Sniper. Um, that was a joke. Um, <laughs> but for Brueggemann, he's saying it doesn't matter what country we're talking about. It's different than the kingdom of God. It's different than you being a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. It's different uh, than the rhythms that God asks you to pattern into your life. Chick-fil-A was one of the last institutions owned by Christians that didn't operate on Sunday and then just recently opened up on Sunday. I don't care. But the point is, is that the systems and the structures and the business of this world doesn't make room for Sabbath. That's just a given. So God gives us this command and he says, observe Sabbath in your life. Come out of the world. Stand in resistance to empire. Take a day where you begin to realize that you're not a consumer and that consumptive energy isn't what's gonna define you. It's not what's gonna bring about the dignity in you. It's not going to bring about the character that's going to make other people want to look up to you and that you're going to leave a legacy into their lives because of that non-anxious presence that you've been able to carry through. Does that make sense? So empire isn't a pejorative word here. It's a theological word. We're not underneath empire as Christians. We're above it and we choose to submit to it the laws of man um, because that's a civic duty and if the laws are unjust we stand against those laws but as citizens of another kingdom we have a different framework for looking at what happens in day to day existence and empire there are mechanisms that drive the city of man and when we do Sabbath we see those mechanisms a little bit better the tension 
the, the hard, the awkwardness, the, the flow, we see it. We see that traffic differently when we stand outside of it looking at it. Eugene Peterson says this, if you don't take a Sabbath, something is wrong. You're doing too much. You're being too much in charge. You've got to quit one day a week and just watch what God is doing when you're not doing anything. So three things about the Sabbath by way of application, or at least the way I understand it, and then you can take and fold that into what it means for your life. But three things. There are sacred things in this world. There's sacred space. There are sacred people. We call them saints or holy people. And there's also sacred time. There's a correlation between sacred time and sacred place. Listen to this, Leviticus 23.3. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of, of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. Um, you are not to do any work wherever you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. Leviticus 19.3. Um, I'm sorry, Leviticus 19.30. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. There's a relationship between space and time. The sanctuary or the temple in the Old Testament was holy ground. The Sabbath was, was holy time and holy space. The assembly, whether it's at the synagogue or the temple, this is a holy place when we come together. It's the assembly. And the time we set aside to allow for this to take place or for us to spend time with holy people in a holy kind of congregation or assembly is that Sabbath. It's the holy time. It's the set-aside time. It's sacred time. There's a correlation. I think our minds understand sacred ground or sacred people more than we understand sacred time. There are places that you went with your wife or your spouse. There are places that hold special meaning for you or your family. A timeshare, a second house, a house that, that holds all your childhood memories. There are certain people that you want your children to look up to and to emulate. You want them to be the heroes of your kids. The aunt that marked you, the grandma that always had a favorite psalm, whatever it is. We understand the thing, the reverence that certain people or places have. And God is saying there needs to be a rhythm where there's one time a week sacred time that nothing else fills. It's a vacuum. And it allows for something totally different to happen than what than would happen the rest of the week. So that's the first thing, to think of the Sabbath as sacred time, like sacred space. Mark Buchanan, uh, who writes a lot on rest, says this, most of the things we need to be most fully alive never come in busyness. They grow in rest. So sacred time, that space, that vacuum, for something radically different to happen than would happen otherwise. Second thing is this. We have to go through anxiety to go to peace. Remember when uh, Forrest Gump ran and ran and ran and ran? And then there was the people that were following Forrest Gump, and then one day Forrest Gump decided not to run? Remember that? And he turned around and started walking back, and he had to walk through the people? Remember that? Like when you're being followed by anxiety and you decide to finally go pursue true rest, you actually have to go through or into anxiety before you're going to find the rest. Um, there has never been time in my life where I've been more anxious than when I started to learn what silence and solitude was. I used to go to this place called the Huntington Library in California. And at first it was two hours, and then by, by the end it was all day, eight hours. But when I first started, it's like 20 minutes in, you're going crazy. Where's my phone? Where's, where's something to write notes? What do I do? And I learned to just take a journal with me, and I'd write down all my anxious thoughts and just get them out of my head. And if I was tired, I'd find a bench and I would take a, a 20, 30 minute nap. Just get it out of the way. And then pretty soon I'd be walking around the Huntington Library and God would start speaking to me. 
It's amazing. You can have a Christian who's been a Christian for two months or a Christian who's been a Christian for 20 years. And if the Christian who's been a Christian for two months is hearing God speak to them and the Christian who's been a Christian for 20 years has never heard God speak to them, I can tell you exactly what is different between the two people. And it's solitude. God speaks to us. We hear God's voice when we create sacred space and time for God to enter in and actually be heard. If you're really trying to hear God's voice, I would almost guarantee you take 12 hours and get away from all other people, noise, distraction, and sit on your knees, fast and pray. I would almost guarantee you, bring a Bible and a journal that you'll hear from God. Or take three times of four hours each, and I almost guarantee you, you will hear the voice of God. But we have to be willing to fight through the anxiety that comes up. Like, I don't know how to be alone. I don't know how to open myself up and be fully naked and present to God and to myself. It's new. I don't know how to do something new and so vulnerable. We have to go through the anxiety. What if God tells me something I don't want to hear? What if I've been running from God and now I know that I have to deal with that awkward thing before I can get to other things. Like, we have to deal with that anxiety before we can move on. Dallas Willard says this, the command is do no work, just make space. Attend to what is around you. Learn that you don't have to do to be. Accept the grace of doing nothing. Stay with it until you stop jerking and squirming. I love that. Basically, the spiritual discipline saw a rebirth in the Protestant world through Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard was bringing the tradition of spiritual discipline, solitude, silence, prayer, fasting, back to the church. He had a young man that he was mentoring at the time by the name of Richard Foster. Richard Foster took the things he was learning from Dallas Willard and wrote a book called Celebration of the Disciplines. That book literally put spiritual disciplines back on the map. Dallas Willard put his thinking into a book called Spirit of the Disciplines. Dallas Willard's a philosopher, so that whole book is really about the purpose, the rationale, the why for spiritual disciplines. I would commend both books to you. Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard and uh, A Celebration of Discipline, which walks through fasting, solitude, prayer, community, etc. We're going to be doing a series on Lent, which is really about removing something from our life to create space in preparation for Easter. Um, I would encourage you to think through the spiritual disciplines. The, the busyness of life today, I think, is a huge topic. I write about it in this new book. Um, so I just want to quote Henry David Thoreau from a, a, an essay he wrote called Life Without Principle, 10 pages. I've must, I must have read, uh, read it about 50 times. Um, some of the most profound 10 pages you'll ever read. But he says this um, in Life Without Principle. He says, we rarely meet a man who can tell us any news which he has not read in a newspaper or been told by his neighbor. You may depend on it that the poor fellow who walks away with the greatest number of letters, proud of his extensive correspondence, has not heard from himself this long while. And I can only imagine what Thoreau would think of social media and everything else, right? Um, Thoreau, I read a lot of Thoreau. Thoreau helped me understand solitude. Thoreau is pretty critical of Christianity. Um, but frankly, I think we Christians need to hear the voice of people who are critical of Christianity. Some of the best things I've learned on how to be a better Christian have come from non-Christians critiquing the wrong parts of our religion. Um, slow down, face the anxiety, create silence, create time. The last thing, number three, is just this. How do you define yourself? If you don't create solitude, rest, Sabbath in your life, you will define yourself somehow by the definitions of empire, by how fast you run, how much you earn, how much you accomplish, how many people you know, how big of an influence or impact you have, 
somehow your identity will be wrapped up with empire. Sabbath, as Brueggemann said, is this form of resistance to defining ourselves along those lines and come into a place where we're willing to trust God and say, if I come out of this game, I might lose or fall behind in this game. So God, there better really be something to this relationship with you and to, to recentering myself as a citizen in this kingdom. There better actually be something you're gonna deliver here that really is what I was made for because it's got to outweigh the cheap stuff I'm getting from over here. And when we create that space, when we, when we work that into our life, we begin to realize, I don't want what the world can offer me. At the end of the day, I just want to be alone with God. I just want to be anchored there. I want God to tell me I'm doing okay or that I'm where I'm supposed to be. When I'm freaking out, it's when I want to fly on an airplane more than anything else because I don't talk to anyone. I don't try and save anyone on an airplane. They, they're they're going to go to hell if they sit next to me. <laughs> Airplanes are my Sabbath space. Uh, and I follow that legalistically. Um, but, but I spend time going, God, I'm freaking out. People are asking me questions that I don't have answers to, but I'm pretending that I do. You know? Like, are we okay here? I feel like you've led me to where I'm at. Are we okay here? And when God says you're good, I've learned that that's all that matters to me in life. My kids, I, I asked them this recently. I said to them, hey, when you grow up, I don't care if you saw me reading my Bible or not. I don't, I don't care if you saw me praying or not. I don't want you to know me by those things. I want you to know one thing and one thing only, that your dad cared first and foremost about his relationship with God and that he was where God wanted him to be, that that was everything to me. And my kids are like, well, you, you do that. Like, we see that. Because you can read your Bible and you can pray, but they might not actually get that your allegiance is over here and not to empire out of that. I want the deeper reality. And if I can keep hearing from God, you're good, then I'll keep following. But sometimes to hear that you're good, you gotta create that space to lay it all out. For God to take you through maybe 10 other things you need to hear before he actually gives you kind of the instructions that are gonna lead you forward. We're out of time. Um, Ben's gonna come up, lead us in song. Please hear me. I love that we gather and that God can use this time to speak into our lives. That's all I desire on Sundays is that somehow, some way, the needle gets moved. And so Father, we do commit it back to you knowing that spiritual fruit comes from the Spirit. Let every man, woman, and child walk out of this building knowing that ultimately their relationship with you is gonna drive the good in their life that we can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and that you do desire us to test you with our faith so that you can show us why you've called us to the path that you've called us to. Um, let us trust you, Father, for every good and perfect thing comes from you. In Jesus' name.